Good morning, everyone. It is me, Stephanie Van Vark, and I am back again today. We're talking business. I am a small business owner. So today we are talking to a, the executive director of the historic Virginia Key Beach Park and Trust, Guy Fortune. I hope I said that right. Um, because it, it's, it's a very interesting time when you look at historic venues. And I think he can speak to us a little bit about the importance of investing in our historic, um, in our history. Um, so without further ado, bringing on Guy Fortune. Hello there. Hi, good morning. Hello, hi Stephanie, good morning. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us today. <laughs> no, I'm more than happy to, thank you. So this is going to be a good show because I think this is a this is a very interesting time we're living in right now. And I think definitely venues like yours can be at the forefront of helping to rectify some of those wrongs. Um, but before we before we get ahead of ourselves, tell me who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm Guy Fortune. I'm the executive director of the Virginia Key Beach Park Trust. And so the trust was created roughly 20 years ago to protect, restore, rebuild, um, and operate historic Virginia Key Beach Park. And that's 82 acres on the island of Virginia Key, the historic colored only beach for Miami-Dade County. Okay. So I, let's say I'm a first timer. I am not, I've been there, it's gorgeous. Um, but I'm a first timer and yeah. I roll onto the grounds. What will I see? Give us a visual of what I'll see, what I'll experience. Okay, let me paint this. Let me paint this picture. So yeah. again, it's just a it's two miles south of downtown Miami. So when you enter the Rickenbacker Causeway and come over the bridge, you get to one of the highest elevations in Dade County, and so you look out at a panoramic view of Miami. And so first of all, it's a beautiful journey. Okay, and I don't just say this to say we're the most beautiful beach <laughs> because but I think we are. But when you cross the bridge, you're on a journey. You're transporting right. yourself to a different place. And so when you come across onto Virginia Key, and that is the island many people believe once they go across the causeway, they're in Key Biscayne. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. You drop onto Virginia Key. This is where the Sequarium is. Uh -huh. This is where the Mast Academy is. Rusty Pelican, people know these places, the Marine Stadium. So all of those things are on the island of Virginia Key. And so when you go along the key, you get to the second traffic light, you'll make a left and you come down Virginia Beach Drive and enter the park. And it's, it's a beautiful place that spans out. You don't directly see the, the seashore because we have built four Or we have built in a coastal dune that is vegetated. So this beach is very natural. This is what you would see on a natural tropical island. So this is not adding sand and re-nourishing it and expanding it the way you see South Beach or Miami Beach or other beaches. This is like being on a tropical island. So it's a very short, sandy shore with vegetation right behind you. Mm -hmm. You don't see any development. You look out to the east, out to the Atlantic Ocean from Bear Cut. And I say Bear Cut because right across the cut, you will see 
the island of Key Biscayne and you'll see the northern side of Crandon Park. Okay. So you're looking at the Key Biscayne Island across the, the shore of Virginia Key Beach. Now, once you roll onto the property, you will see a giant sand structure. It's about 35 feet tall. We had the world's tallest um, sand castle. Um, you know, world, world record height. <clears throat> and it was built uh, roughly four years ago now. We had no belief, even the folks that built it didn't believe that it would last longer than a year. Um, it lasted and looked fantastic for two years. Doesn't look as good as it used to now, but it's still a, an incredible monument. It was sculpted. And so you'll see that when you enter the park. But then there's all the historic elements that were here. The historic bathhouse, concession stand, the mini train. And I'll talk about that a little later in this discussion. The carousel and our offices are there. So okay. we put on a, a number of different events. There are two massive lawns where you can have all sorts of uh, concerts and, and events. Much of what we did before COVID-19. Right, right. Okay, so we're experiencing <laughs> yeah, we're a different, that sure. Yeah, we're experiencing yeah, we definitely have to because it has changed the world. It has changed how people use uh -huh. open spaces. Um, but so, you know, basically it's a staff of about 15 great people. And we make sure that the history of, of this island, um, the, the courageous acts that African-Americans made in 1945 mm -hmm. to hold this place, people of color, we make sure that that stays alive and that their, uh, their work, their, their, courageous act has allowed, you know, the entire public to experience this place today. So let me ask you, the vegetation, you talk about it being a small beach and vegetation, very indicative of, uh, you know, tropical light, a tropical island. Was that what it looked like in 1945? And have you aspired to, in your restoration, recapture a lot of that, uh, that look and feel of the, co of color, of the colored beach at that time? Um, the beach at the time, uh, no, it, it was not. It was a sandy beach filled with coconut palm. Okay. It is now it is now largely populated with native plants. Okay. And when I say that, coconut palm trees technically are not, not a native species to okay. South Florida. Okay. That might sound completely crazy right. because we have coconut trees all over. I have one in my front lawn we at home. Okay. We so they're all over. Right. Um, but it's, you know, through, through years of hurricanes, most of those those coconut ponds that, palms that were on the shore had been destroyed. Right. And so I've got to go through a little bit of history here. This park was created in 1945, but at the end of segregation, people of color, Black people stopped coming to this beach. They started going to every beach, Crandon, Hallover, South Beach, wherever they wanted to go. Um, and it was a county property then and was allowed to fall into disrepair. So it spent 26 years closed to the public from 1982 to 2008. In that quarter century, weeds and exotic plants grew over the entire property. So it looks nothing like it did in 1945, nor does it look how it did when we entered the property 
mm-hmm. around 2003, 2004 to start restoring it. It was a completely okay. overgrown space. Okay. So um, what? Decayed okay. parking lot uh, was destroyed. Okay. Yes, yes. No, I wanted to ask, so what kind of, when it was a colored only beach, you know, obviously African-Americans visit here, but what type of families? Um, were they affluent? Um, were they, you know, working class? Everybody's sort of in the same spot enjoying this experience. And what are some of the memories that you've heard that have come out of those moments? Yeah, the, the beauty of the park is that it brought everyone together. Mm-hmm. Affluent, working class, poor, it did not matter. This was based on color. And so this was Overtown, Coconut Grove, Liberty City, Brownsville, those neighborhoods, everyone came to the park. So there are pictures, you know, after church, buses and and trucks would bring people. So everyone came to the park. And, you know, those are some of the things that make such an incredible rich history. Mm -hmm. This wasn't one segment of people. This wasn't the affluent spot. This was everyone's spot. And also there were quite a few Hispanic, Hispanic people that came to this park. Again, it was based on your color, based on whether or not a person was light enough to pass. Right. Okay. And so Crandon Beach was the white beach and right across Bear Cut was the black beach. Okay. Um, So there are a lot of stories I've gotten from Hispanics whose parents and grandparents who came in the 50s, um, some could only come to this park. And were right. welcomed. Right, right. And they were welcomed. Um, so it's it's amazing stories of fellowship, of people trading food, talking amongst one another. I mean, you saw the your neighbor at the beach. You saw your neighbor at church. And then later in the day, you saw your neighbor recreating. Right. And, you know, the it, and it brought everyone. I mean... Stars, MLK was here. Nice. Um, if you were performing, if exactly, I mean, if you were performing on Miami Beach and, and as a black entertainer, you could not stay overnight mm-hmm. on Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. You could not go in the ocean on Miami Beach. So what did you do? You stayed at the hotels in Overtown on Rick- Third and <laughs> Right. And if you wanted to recreate, you wanted to recreate, you came over to the beach and got some sun and fun. So everyone who performed in the, you know, Jackie Gleason days of Miami Beach, then stayed in Overtown and recreated on the park. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the business side of, um, as you mentioned earlier, this is a venue, as I, as you mentioned, I've been to several times with concerts, special events, um, you know, just coming to see the place in space. Prior to the pandemic, were those your primary methods of revenue and income? Or can you speak to how does the um, park itself uh, generate revenue for itself? Um, and thank you. And, and when you asked me to come on to this show and it was about businesses, I know most people are probably thinking, you know, what, what does the trust have to do with some business? It's a, it's a government entity. You know, it's well, it's, well it's, it, it is business and it's, and it's very unique too, because um, when the project started, the city 
paid for the, the operation of the beach. Mm -hmm. It paid for the staff. In 2010, at the recession, the economic meltdown, mm -hmm. the city stopped funding the trust completely. Wow. So from 2010 to 2017, the park completely operated on revenues we generated, mm -hmm. 100%. Mm -hmm. And so it, we opened this space in February 2008. Mm -hmm. There was no entry fee for vehicles. Um, again, it's a public park. And we right. still feel this way today. This is a public park. And so to pay to enter your public park is <laughs> not something that is in the mentality of my board and myself in Absolutely. this public space. This is for everyone. Right. But in... In 2010, when all funds were removed, and, and I'm talking about a, a place that had a staff of, of roughly two dozen, um, mm -hmm. was reduced really to, to five people mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. no revenue. So more mm -hmm. than a million dollars given to the trust each year for staff mm -hmm. to zero. And so wow. we instantly knew we would have to do, yeah, to zero. Right. So we knew we would have to do some things very different in order to survive. Mm -hmm. um, we, we began a, an entry for, for vehicles, and, and today it's $5 in weekdays and $8 on weekends. Okay. Um, picnic pavilions, you can rent the pavilions. They're $250. We don't double book them, so you have them all day. So mm -hmm. families can really do all sorts of activities, uh, different corporate partners that hold... Uh, you know, activities for their staff come out. Churches will rent the locations, family reunions. I mean, once people knew the park was open, mm -hmm. it was difficult having been closed for 26 years Absolutely. and then it opens. It takes years to get people to know you're even open. Right, right, right. Um, and so once we got over that hill, I think we started to get a lot more activity and then large events became, began to, to come in, concerts and different things of that nature. And okay. in that regard, it, it's an amazing outdoor space. It's an amazing mm -hmm. natural space. So the, you know, the, the Marley Festival was here. We, and, and you may know just a couple of years ago, Ultra was here, okay? Yeah, I heard that. that. I think even more. <laughs> yeah, um, Ultra came in. That. That, that put us on a global map. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I've been to the soul food. So, I think that is you know, a lot of the world is exposure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, soul yeah, food yeah. came. Um, <laughs> we have a lot. The, the, the grassroots festival of music and da dance made us their winter home. And so they were okay. here for seven years. Okay. And so, you know, we try to have a wide variety of things that take place here. Um, we welcome everything and all groups. And mm -hmm. so I think we've been very successful there, but we're, we, we work very hard to make sure that when you visit the place, it's inviting, it's welcoming, it's beautiful as a natural mm -hmm. space, mm -hmm. um, educational. And we, we're working now to, to, to make sure on the property that there's signage and that helps fill you in on the nature and the history of the beach. 
The idea okay. is that you would come here, enjoy yourself, but you will know you were at a very important place in the civic activism realm of Miami. This was a big success story of civic activism. I mean, folks waded in at Hallover Beach, hoping to be arrested to bring attention to the injustice of segregation in 45, you know, basically 15, 20 years before we think about the 60s civic right. activism. This right. was right after World War II. And, and much of it was led by soldiers, by veterans that came back from Europe being treated fairly mm -hmm. and then come to America and are segregated and didn't stand for it. Right. And right. so they began a first wave, what we called the double V, the double victory. Victory abroad and then victory against segregation and discrimination in America at home. Now, it's interesting. And so this was a major success story for that effort. And it's interesting you bring that about because we're there now. It's a, we're back at square one, I'd like to say, with the yes. protests, the civil unrest. Um, it's prompted some very interesting conversations, I believe, that are that extend beyond just uh, police violence against Black men, Black people, yes. people of color. Yeah. Um, it's talked about the, the economy. It's talked about, you know, just... Uh, the history, um, it's opened up a real Pandora's box. So how can we look to the history, as you were just saying, to guide, inform, help us strategize future opportunities for African-Americans during, during this time? What did they do then that we need to be incorporating now? Um, I think, uh, and, and I'll talk just some personally on this, and then I think some broader views um, you know, I was really struck by how many people came out in marches. I am, and it's such an interesting time because it's also woven into the coronavirus pandemic. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So you have this issue of you come out in March, but are you supposed to social distance? Right. And so... You know, we participated in a march a couple weekends ago, and you know, everyone's in mass. Um, you know, it's a very different, surreal almost type of scenario. Um, I'm not from Miami originally, but I grew up here, so I was in high school during the May '80 riots. Okay, and had a chance to see all of that, and 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 literally, I mean, my stepdad asked me. He said, "Hey, let's go into the riot zone." and really see what's going on. Oh, and wow. so we did. We got That's in trouble and, and, and went in to, to not to participate, <laughs> but to really see what was going on. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. And, you know, that activism, that the anger in the community, it's sad that 40 years later we're seeing it. But I mean, 90% mm -hmm. of the people marching weren't old enough to have been in the 80 riots. Mm -hmm. And that's both, you know, exciting to me that they're they're fighting for justice and equality. It's sad that it's yeah. 40 years and we still have to later and it's the still same mad. thing. Uh -huh. I won't call it square. 
Yeah, yeah. Now I won't call it square one. I won't say we're back at square one. Okay. But it is right. there's so much more work that still has to be done. And it's wonderful seeing it happen. It's wonderful mm -hmm. seeing Mississippi drop the Confederate flag mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from the state flag. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's happening in Richmond, Virginia right now with the monuments? Some of those things do need to be removed. Now, in functioning with the historic Beach Park, we're all, we're ultimately building a museum here. Oh, nice. Okay, to tell this story, to educate people, and like you said, to have a role in this civic activism, in what one person can do, what a small group of people wading into the ocean created a legacy of importance and history that lives today. That mm -hmm. one person can make the difference, a group of people can make a larger difference. So some of those things will be in this museum. Also, just the stories of those who, who fought before. I mean, Athelie Range, mm -hmm. powerful figure for the Black community in South Florida, can't be forgotten, our founding chairperson, and led this fight, mm -hmm. led many fights for desegregation throughout South Florida. I mean, those notable figures will be remembered through this place. But also, it's a gathering place. That's what it always was. Mm -hmm. It was a safe place. It was almost a sanctuary, a spiritual place. Many baptisms were, were done here, and they're happening today. They still take place, and, and some in huge numbers. Uh, and I mean hundreds, baptisms of hundreds of people. Nice. And so we've got to maintain that. You know, we've got to maintain that role that this place represents. Um, but it's also something that I believe is going to galvanize the entire island of Virginia Key. Absolutely. The island itself is a thousand acres. We're 82 acres. But I think there's a whole story to be told of, of this natural barrier island in mm -hmm. an environmental, you know, each person's right to public space. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Miami, everything is overdeveloped. Yeah, so there's a fight to hold on to public space, to recreational space. Um, it's understood uh, through science that human beings need open space. Right. Human beings need to be able to interact with the ocean. You know, we have an issue here in South Florida of, you know, no access to water that's largely safe for the affluent. Right. Whether Absolutely. your home is on a on a seawall or your condo is oceanfront. Right. Um, that has always been an issue across the entire country. And I think what's happening today is, is, is we, you know, we see these protests to the George Floyd issue. It's not just police brutality or unfairness. Yeah. There, there are these things in many different levels of our society. And in the same way women deal with a glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. And you say to yourself, what is that? Glass ceiling for us. Glass ceiling. What's that supposed to mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. One of those, it's one of those issues of you just have to stand up and say enough of that. Right. We need to function on an equal and fair basis. Um those are things that I think a lot of these marches are starting to touch. Um, and it's outside of just uh, police brutality. I mean, there's even age discrimination. There's, Absolutely. There, Absolutely. You know, there's a scenario, 
yeah, that, that young people are this different group of Americans and should be, you know, dealt with differently and, mm -hmm. you know, by a status quo. Mm -hmm. And it, they're the next generation. They, they will forge what they want this country to be and look like. Mm -hmm. And I think through the marches, we see what that is. Right. Okay. We see unity. We see love. We see the, the fight for freedom and justice. Um, no know, matter who you are, what's your color. Gathering. Yeah. That's no matter who you are, what's your color. Um, it's almost like the beach. It's everybody, rich, poor. This is, this is not about one group having a special place or a special circumstance. This is everyone needs to function together. Everyone needs to be you know, treated equally and fairly. Well, you kind of touched on something that is um, actually a couple of things. Actually, I want to talk about it. I don't know which one to ask first. So, <laughs> so you are correct um, that this should be an equal and fair opportunity. But I think about, um, you know, venues like yours um, largely gets a lot of attention in Black History Month. So they're sort of, you know, I, I'm very associated with very, you know, various venues and historical venues where Black History Month is the month that everybody is very intentional about um, not only delving into our history, understanding who and what we are, but, be, but being willing to pay for it on a regular basis. How do we get and what are some of the conversations about once we get past March 1st? During this time, can we start to have real intentional action plans where we get everyone to really think about how to invest in um, patronage, um, be at venues like yours 365 days it just becomes an unconscious effort how do we get how do we move that dial along so you are sort of consistently in in the ma in the mainstream eye for longer than 28 days out of the year <laughs> sure and and we um and i can tell you we intentionally work on things to do just that and whether mm -hmm. that is inviting other communities whether it's the bahamian community Haitian Americans, Hispanic Americans, other communities that that go outside of our <laughs> Black History Month. Mm -hmm. um, there's a African diaspora in all of those communities, mm -hmm. Central America, South America, Cuba, all of those places. There's an African diaspora. Mm -hmm. um, it's part of what has taken place globally. Um, some of it, unfortunately, some of it naturally. But when we talk about colonialism, it has brought an African diaspora to native people that were in South America, Central America and North America. Um, so we make a point of trying to celebrate and inject those other cultures, history, where it can roll in and be very similar. The struggle that took place for African-Americans in South Florida and in saving this beach is one that plays out across the world. Um, and that's, that's both unfortunate, but it also builds a great tie to understanding how you raise up your history. Um, it's American history. It's not black history. Right. It's American history. Absolutely. And so it's, it's a part of that. 
And, and that's been said many times before and, and may not have had much behind it. But I think in some of these marches where we talk about Black Lives Matter, folks are understanding. And when I say that, I mean everyone of all colors are understanding how you have to pull for each other. Mm-hmm. It's not just about this idea of, well, all lives matter. Of course they do. But we're talking about Black Lives Matter because there are issues in this country that have to bring a real focus to Black lives. Because all lives don't matter if Black lives don't matter because we're a part of all. So there there you are. It's got to be all. For someone not to say Black Lives Matter. (laughs) Then it's not all. It's not being inclusive of all lives matter. Or you're not. What is the problem with saying that? Right. So, you know, exactly. okay, just thought that Exactly. So, now yeah, you no, tapped on... And I'm glad that you did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> so, you tapped on something that not even is on my list. Um, you talk about beachfront property, and yes, you are correct. In Miami, beachfront property is prime real estate. Um, it's where the wealthier live. Um, and, and in some cases, it's yeah. sort of commandeered. Yeah as their own personal um, space. Um, as you know, um, in this territory, um, the ocean rising has been um, at the forefront and the concern of many of, of, of our communities, um, you know, and rightfully so, because quite frankly, there is perception in what, 25 years, 25, 50 years, Miami Beach might be underwater, which now makes many African-American communities beachfront, which makes them, you know, the higher elevations tend to be where prime the black property. So prime property, which now means everybody's, you know, kind of coherent on those spaces. So what, you know, have you as a historian and in, at, at, and as a part of a collective, started to have some of those conversations and how do we save our history? How do we save um, our populations under an intentional desire to continue to make beachfront property only for the wealthy and primarily only for the wealthy white? <laughs> yeah, it's um, this is gonna be a difficult a difficult battle. Um, there's been talk, we've been talking about it at the trust and with other people and, and especially with environmentalists because we've had to deal with the sea level rise front and center. Uh-huh. Um, but for the black communities, and this plays out along all coastal areas, coastal cities, coastal states, wealthy neighborhoods, largely white neighborhoods, were oceanfront, the uh-huh. workforce, was inland close enough to be able to serve those communities. Mm -hmm. So this is something in in city planning that existed. Uh Mm -hmm. Largely still exists today. You can go to LA, you can go to different cities where Mm -hmm. there's really wealthy neighborhoods and then there will be a poorer black community or community of color that largely was the workforce mm-hmm. close Poor enough that. to be able to serve there, mm-hmm. not in the suburbs, <laughs> close enough to those really wealthy areas. 
-hmm. Well, now the switch is on, okay, as you brought up. <laughs> because of the environment. Sea level rise. Now, Miami, Miami is very unique in that it's one of the, in terms of home ownership of the actual residences, it, it rates very low uh -huh. in terms of home ownership in the occupied building. So a lot of our communities, and I say the Black communities, a lot of them, people are renting properties. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. owner can sell that property to build a high rise, a new condo. We, we see these neighborhoods, mm -hmm. whether it's Wynwood, Little Haiti with Magic City and, and other places, you see this development shooting in and you say, wow, that's terrible. It drives out the, the local neighborhood. Well, it drives them out in two forms. They're, they're either not the owner of the property. Mm -hmm. They're not the owner of the apartment building. Absolutely. Someone else is. Uh -huh. um, or the market value of their property is now so high and having largely been starved out of equal opportunity. Uh -huh. uh -huh. Here comes an opportunity to finally sell your property for for a small piece of the pie, uh -huh. if you would. Uh -huh. that's how you can have some of these neighborhoods really change rapidly. So uh -huh. I see uh, the commissioners in the city of Miami have been fighting to try to create affordable housing, to try to hang on to, and, and especially the fight that's been going on in Little Haiti. You know, it's, uh -huh. how do you allow the culture of that neighborhood to stay if you're removing the people? Absolutely. How do you hang on to them? And the identity. You know, it, it was it was an yeah. indigenous population for the Haitian community. Now, does it does it reflect that anymore? That's a, that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Um, and exactly. so, okay, we're supposed to be talking about business, aren't we? So, <laughs> so the trust, <laughs> the trust itself. Um, have you completed your restoration plan? Are you still in the in the um, process of restoration? We have probably completed, I would say, 90 to 95 percent of the actual physical restoration of the park. And I okay. say that and we have restored all of the historic buildings. Uh, when we first came onto the property, there had been a mini train. Well, when we arrived, there was no railroad track. There was no train. The, the carousel building was there, but there was no carousel. And so we've replaced those items. Um, the property itself is going through a transformation of, you asked about, does it look how it did in 1945? And as I said, no, it did not, because we are following today's environmental knowledge, and that's wow. native plants. So we went through a, a massive project, and part of it with the Army Corps of Engineers of the invasive exotic species of plants mm -hmm. and adding native plants. So the property now, and, and probably for the last five to 10 years, has been made up of 90%, of if not more, um, native plants. And that has come through, I can't even express how much volunteerism has built right. this place. Um, with, when you're trying to manage 82 acres with hardly a budget following the economic meltdown, uh -huh. it can only be 
be done by community involvement and people helping us do it. And so, I mean, we had a group uh, and they still work with us today, Tremendous Miami, who were working on this property before the trust came out and still do today. They have planted thousands of native plants and have helped us continue to remove exotic plants. It's just like pulling weeds out of your, your yard at home only it's 80 plus acres. So right. You need a lot more hands. Right. And it's work. Yeah. And it's, and it's work you have to do by hand. It's hard work. It's hot, but you get to do it in one of the most beautiful locations in Miami. So that has drawn thousands of volunteers. So um, the pandemic hit. Um, so, and you mentioned that a lot of your revenue streams came from events, concerts, um, family functions, um, and, and still today in Miami, and particularly in the city of Miami, we've been very cautious about opening up at this point. I don't think uh, you can fully open the park completely. Um, what has been your pivot plan? First, I want to ask if, you know, did you, were you able to apply mm-hmm. for some of the loans and the grants were, that were out there? And what, what are some of your other pivot plan um, revenue streams that you've either enacted or are going to enact and, and plan to continue? Well, we're in a, we're in a real tough spot there. Um, since the pandemic, we have not been able to be open Mm-hmm. So that has ended revenue from vehicles entering the park. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are banging at the gates wanting to come in. But until mm-hmm. this gets to a place where it is considered safe, that happens on a very limited basis. Um, I don't know when large events will be authorized to take place again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're still in the phase two, which is roughly right. 10 people gather. Right. So we are not renting picnic pavilions. We are not having people gathering on the park. Um, All of those types of events are gone. And that's right on down to families renting a picnic pavilion. Uh Um, So we're largely in a holding pattern on on that funding stream. Um, We're in the middle of a fundraising event, which is virtual. Yes, I've got to bring that up. 75th anniversary is August 1st. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, And so we're super excited about it. Uh, We know a lot of the community is really excited about Mm -hmm. it. And we were planning a huge concert event on the property. Um, Because when you're 75, of course, you want everyone to see the place. (laughs) Um, We've got to do that virtually now. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, the coronavirus has caused that to have to happen. So there is a way now where we will have a virtual login. It's a wonderful event where you will see the property narrated by uh, Mr. Connolly. He's a historian known here in these parts and has worked with us in the past and will really kind of walk us through the history of the beach. And it's fun. It's a it's a kind of a drinks and cheese, you know, reception that you have your own house party and support the trust at the same time. So those tickets will start flowing on out literally in the next few days. We have started to reach out to folks to buy their ticket. 
um, and you will get a, a wonderful 75th anniversary item, a gift from the trust when you log in and, and you'll be in a community of the reception, of saving the park, of helping us continue on our mission. Um, but it's going to be very difficult. And you talk about our, our pivot. Um, there's been great interest in people coming out to public spaces. And I think if we do, at, at the very least, loosen up to the phase two, gathering of 50 people, Mm-hmm. most of our revenue streams start to come back. We'll have to work a lot harder to see through this, just this tough period. Yeah. You know, some of our supporters, folks who can give to the trust to help us with operations. Um, you know, we've, we've got a, a number of new interesting, it does drive innovation, innovations. There are people looking at different ways to hold events that are socially distanced. We're looking right. at a, uh, you know, we've all heard it, drive-in theaters and drive-in yes, concerts. It's awesome. It's awesome. And, and, that, please. And, and, yes. And, and all, all of those kinds of things please. are being stirred around. So parts of that is. Yes, I, I would do that for sure. I would do that for sure. So. Um, you, you talked about grants. And, and some of those things, we're, we're still in a period now where it'll be, you know, it's, it's a difficult one to figure. There are some opportunities that we're looking at to try mm-hmm. to grab hold of. Um, it may come through all of the losses in the city mm-hmm. going to the state and federal government, almost mm-hmm. similar to the same way in, in Hurricane Irma. Some of our losses, we recoup them through FEMA through the city of Miami, because okay. this is a city. So, so we're still seeing how this will work. Um, never been in a situation that has been so day to day. We have changes day to day. Right. We were we were excited about reopening the park. We had big crowds in, in the last two weeks that have come through the property. And July Fourth weekend was going to be a big one for us. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, that would be one of the biggest ones. Um, it'll now be zero. We are closed. Okay, so the like the other beaches, we will be closed mm-hmm. from the third to the seventh. Mm-hmm. So it, it's still something where we just we keep our energy high. We keep pivoting, as you as you spoke of. Mm-hmm. How do you do some things differently? <laughs> How do you apply for new and different grants? But I also think there's a, a massive app opportunity moving forward on. You know, and it's not just a, a grant, not just a grant process. And, and this ties back to the protests. This ties back to how do we integrate our whole country as one? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not what dollars are available for what programs and, and, and is that history important or not? I think it's obvious that everyone's struggle in America is part of a whole. And mm-hmm. part of how we move forward in, in a healthy way, in a healthy right. society. And so that's, I an projects, that's an intentional investment like in others. Mm-hmm. It, exactly. It's just a very intentional, it's, hey, we have to do this in order for things to progress in a positive and healthy way. Mm-hmm. And, and that is respecting and dealing with 
all cultures, all histories, binding them together, seeing the importance in all of them so that it moves forward in one fabric and not sort of separated, you know, little segmented areas where this gets thrown at this group, but, but the mass stays here. Right. Or even other groups are are are, are trying to, to steer into following the math the, the mass and abandoning their own. Right, absolutely. Because because the because the, the money flows somewhere else. In that direction. No, it, it needs to yes, and it needs to flow across all the different areas, I think we're getting to a place where that's getting understood. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. So I'm happy to hear that those. Was, One of my was, questions was Stephanie that, was, that was Stephanie, that was actually my little message to the city of Miami <laughs> and our funding stream. Okay. That's what that was. <laughs> okay. I kind of thought that was it, but you might have been you know, feeling that a little bit. That that's what that was. What happened. Okay. We'll make sure we'll make sure this gets in the right hands. <laughs> there we go. Okay. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Um so your emergency plan. As you mentioned before, we've had mm. uh, the pandemic is a different special dynamic. Um, mm. I've definitely learned from this show that um, nonprofit organizations seem to be a little bit um, better at having an emergency plan, you know, primarily that's really based on hurricane situations. How do you how do you stay afloat during those temporary situations? Did, does the trust have an emergency plan? And are you revisiting that emergency plan as we speak right now um, to, to consider larger, more catastrophic, catastrophic circumstances? Um, I've got to say, uh, I'm going to answer the second one first, which is yes, we are revisiting <laughs> our emergency plan. This is unlike hurricanes. Uh, we were closed for 17 days during Hurricane Irma. Um, um, and that seemed like an eternity. It seemed like an eternity when 80% when of your revenue comes from being open. Right. And I think any business owner today can you know, relate to that concept. Mm -hmm. if you can't if you aren't open you cannot generate revenues and, and that that stretches across the board to the employees who are there and, and what mm -hmm. their revenues are like and their financial situation so you try to to maintain things and, and keep things steady and and uh you know and not be in a in a panic mode right we are revisiting it and that happens through, it can happen through a number of different ways. We've, we've been working, you know, our, our future plans are a museum on this property. Mm -hmm. And we're in, a, we're in a good situation in that regard because the dollars to build it are there. Mm -hmm. There's $20.5 million from the, the county general obligation bond to physically build the structure. But I think we all know, you know, if, if somebody gives you a gift of a $20 million mansion. If you can't afford to keep it up, you can't, right. Right. can't Absolutely. do it. Okay? Absolutely. So, 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 yeah, I mean, absolutely. So um, we're happy that a year ago, we're actually in July. So we're almost on the one year anniversary of the city of Miami unanimously voting to fund the museum for the first 10 years when the doors open. 
Okay. And so that, yes, I, I love your expression. Oh, yeah. it's been mine. <laughs> and so that, and that's just, to me, that is, to me, that is, that is the city saying that is a year ago. That is before these, these protests and the sort. That is the city saying this is important to the yeah. fabric of our city. We need to support a place that tells those stories. Right. And right. so our challenge now, and we're, we're finalizing the scope of work for the design and planning consultant that will begin to move this process forward. And it's a, it's mm -hmm. a lengthy process. There's, a, there's planning, there's permitting, then there's construction. We're talking about probably three years for those who have built buildings mm -hmm. or built a house or, or what have you. And no, any project takes time. But that portion of it is probably three to three and a half years away from walking into a building. And so mm -hmm. we're trying to work behind the scenes, regardless of whether or not the coronavirus is, mm -hmm. is slowing down revenues today. If your mind isn't working three, five, and seven years in the future, you'll find yourself in trouble. So right. we're still working to the future, to the opening right. of the museum. In those right. one, two, and three-year steps, revenue will come. Things will become normalized in whatever that new pattern looks like. And right. we'll be here to adjust and, and, and conform to that so that we keep our eye on the prize, which is building the museum at this point. I mean, we okay. opened the park to the public. Um, we get over 100,000 visitors a year. We'd like to see that get even higher. Um, but mm -hmm. it's used, it's known, and people love the space and love that it's been reopened to them. So we keep our eyes on staying afloat <laughs> month to month, like right. most people do. Like most people um, right now. <laughs> we're looking at that <laughs> museum. Right. Like most people right now, it's, it's right. how do you keep the lights on? Right. But the plan is that museum and telling this story. Okay. So before we go, I really wanted to make sure, first of all, I want to say thank you. This has been very actually educational for me. And I know we're supposed to solely be talking about business, but nope, we got some good history in there. So thank you for that. Um, I would also like to find out how do we find you? How do we get others to find you and help you and, and make sure they come and check you out when we can open up once again? Well, they definitely need to, uh, one, of course, go to our website. I mean, you know, I think the news right now, it's, it's very interesting what has happened. I mean, there were many people who were getting their, their news from a lot of different places, whether it was social media. We were watching a lot of news outlets and newspapers and whatnot drop down. I think now people are a little more tuned in to what's happening next, even if it's just whether or not you should wear a mask or not, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay? You know, is a curfew on or not? Right. So you kind of check in every couple of days to know <laughs> whether or not you're, you're doing things properly. Right. Um, but visit us, virginiakeybeachpark.net. That's virginiakeybeachpark.net. Visit us at HVKBMP. That's for Historic Virginia Key Beach Museum Park. And that site is 
finally tuned in to our 75th anniversary. Go there. Take a look at that. Participate with us August 1st. And we'll really be surging on that now. It's 30 days away. And so we want everyone to log in, join our reception. That'll help support us. You can give donations there, of course. But we also just want the public, whether we're all still at home a month from now or have the opportunity to move around and maybe visit the park on August 1st, that's a Saturday. And believe me, we saw that some years out and said, boy, are we going to have a big party at the beach for the 75th birthday? Even the though there's corona, we're, <laughs> we're still going to do it online. Okay. So we want as many people as possible to join us there. Can you say that last website really quickly again? Because there was a bit of a glitch and I want to make sure everybody gets that because I want you all tuning in. Did you say that web, that last the, website really the, quickly? The second one is, it's hvkbmp.org. Okay. Thank you so much. Again, um, we will all definitely be putting that information hey, out. And uh, y'all have a good day. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us again today. Um, that was a wonderful experience because I learned some stuff and I'm going to buy my ticket now. We will be pushing the ticket information out as well. Um, you will find it through Going Overtown, which is a newsletter uh, we send out weekly. Please sign up for it at goingovertown.org. We will be sending that out um, regularly just to make sure you know more about it. And we also share all things that are happening at the historic Virginia Key Beach. So thank you again. Tune in with us next Tuesday, um, which we'll, we'll have a special show on that day. Thank you for tuning in, and y'all have a great weekend. Happy July 4th, and um, hope you have a great time for, for our Independence Day. Have a good day.